I'm Dr. Vanessa Sinclair, and this is Rendering Unconscious. My guest today is Dr. Todd McGowan, professor of theory and film at the University of Vermont. Could we begin with relationship between psychoanalysis and philosophy? So I think it's interesting that uh, Lacan sees himself, initially sees himself as Hegelian and the influence of Kojève, and I think, and, and I think Freud sees himself less philosophical um, and, and even thinks of distancing himself from philosophy. And yet I feel like there's this way in which psychoanalysis is, uh, is rooted in philosophy and can't, and, 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 and the more it tries to distance itself. So my point about Lacan was going to be that Lacan initially starts out thinking he's Hegelian. And I think he's not as Hegelian as he thinks he's more Kojevian. And then he, Alexander Kojev. And and then I think he becomes increasingly Hegelian as he thinks he's distancing himself from philosophy. So I think it's interesting that both these key figures in psychoanalysis think that they're breaking from philosophy and really they're finding, they're they're rooting themselves in it in ways that, and I I think what's fascinating is a lot of times they don't know. Like, I don't think that Freud probably read Hegel, and I think he read Kant just a little bit, and so I and Descartes maybe just a little bit. So it's interesting to me that they uh, find their way into philosophy, but not directly through the philosophers themselves. So there's something. I guess what I find interesting is there's something psychoanalytic about. I mean, sorry, that was a funny slip. There's something philosophic about the psychoanalytic enterprise itself, that if you just are pursuing it, you're, you're dragged into philosophical problems and questions and even the history of philosophy, because that those were the, like the preoccupations of philosophy w- were in some sense, what will become the preoccupations of psychoanalysis. And what do you see in Lacan's thought that makes you say that he moves more towards Hegel as he goes along? Good question. So the earlier, I think the earlier Lacan is much more uh, interested in, I mean, he certainly takes the master-slave dialectic as one of his points of departure. He even says somewhere, I think it's in seminar two, that I, I take this as my point of departure and I keep returning to it. And so I think that's where he thinks he's Hegelian. But I, I, I for me, I think that's a very small part of Hegel. And I think it often gets misread. And I think he thought of it as the struggle for recognition. So I think recognition plays a larger part in his earlier work. And then later, I think recognition falls out. And this idea, and I think the idea for Hegel to, to, to root it in Hegel is that ultimately what is irreducible is contradiction. And I think there's a way in which Lacan gets to that point that that there is no, the idea of mutual recognition certainly drops out of his, I think there's some, 
idea that through the symbolic we can achieve mutual recognition in the early seminars. And I think in the later seminars, that idea totally drops out. And I think that's a much more Hegelian idea that recognition fails and that desire is in some way beyond recognition. So I find that a way in which he's that, that move away from recognition, I see as a move away from a Kojevian version of Hegel to what I would call a more real version of Hegel or more authentic version of Hegel. And for those who don't know, could you say a little bit more about the theory of recognition? Sure. So the idea is that the, the, there's a struggle for recognition between two individuals and one uh, ends up saying, or at the end, rather than, so it's a struggle. It's a struggle for for recognition that ends up that ends when one gives up. One so one becomes the the the, the relationship between master and slave arrives when one side of one individual in the arguments or in the struggle, sorry, uh, says I give up. I don't want to be killed. And then that and then as a result, the slave agrees to recognize the figure of the master. So that's for the that, and and. That's the that's a recognition that results from the struggle, but the problem is, and this is the thing that Alexander Kojev, Hegel's great interpreter of the early 20th century, says, is that the recognition that the slave gives the master is never sufficient because it's not from like you want recognition from an equal, and that the slave is giving you recognition. It's not it's not someone who's worthy of giving you recognition. So that's the problem, and so a lot of People, even today, like Robert Pippin, there are these Hegel scholars who think this, that think that we need to, the point that Hegel's making is that we need to get beyond this master-slave relationship to a situation of mutual recognition where each side rec- – but in some way, the point of the master-slave dialectic is that you can never achieve mutual – like mutual recognition. The person – like if you recognize me, I'm never going to think – It's, it's like, I think it's like the – when you're when you have a, a, a situation of when you're liking someone like you if, if if or that that old Woody Allen joke that I'll never want to join a club that would have me as a member you know like that that if the if the person feel is willing to recognize you then they're not worthy of of recognizing you so I think that's the problem that Lacan ends up getting to and that Hegel I think uncovers so I think that's a to me that's a that's where this failure of recognition that like an earlier investment in mutual recognition and then a rec then an understanding that recognition ultimately fails. Is this what your new book is about? Uh, it's about, well, it's about a critique of that reading of Hegel for sure. And it's about one chapter is about the way that it was impossible. So this is why I kind of, I guess I started on this idea that it's impossible to, read Hegel correctly without the lens of psychoanalysis so that, so that Freud really, even though he mentions Hegel only twice and just in passing, and it's pretty clear he didn't read him, uh, that Freud makes possible an understanding of Hegel because he's able, like the, the notion of unconscious, I think is Hegel didn't have that idea and it wouldn't have, in some way it wouldn't make sense to him. But I think he, that it's essential to his thought because what's essential to his thought is that we are driven to act in ways that undermine our self-interest. And I think that's a basic, to me, that's a basic psychoanalytic idea. And I feel like that's something that Hegel couldn't as a, 
you know, he's still in this tradition of Aristotelian tradition of the good. And I think he couldn't quite break out of that. And so my part of the book is saying that it's only through the lens of psychoanalysis that we can reread Hegel and make and understand him what he thought himself, but couldn't quite articulate, even though it's still, it's sort of there. Uh, I don't want to say unconsciously, but like it's there, it's actually there articulated, but it's not utterly clear. It's not totally clear. So that's, that's basically what, that's why I see psychoanalysis as important for this recovery of Hegel, I guess. I mean, other people have done it, like Slavoj Žižek has done it a lot. So it's just, my thing is much more focused on, on this idea of contradiction and how crucial that is, that concept is for Hegel. And then it seems to me like that's a crucial, even though it doesn't get articulated in psychoanalysis, psychoanalytic theory quite like that. Like, I don't think people say contradiction all the time. But I think it's nonetheless a key, a key driving, because this con- like your unconscious is is it's a contradict has a contradictory effect. I think. So. Why don't you say more about that? Okay, so well, if you're gonna if you have an unconscious, you're acting against you. You can't. You're so. I think one of the one of the claims of a lot of critics of Hegel is contradiction can't be real. And I think psychoanalysis shows it can be real. Like I can want, like I can want something and I can unconsciously desire precisely what I don't want. So I think that's the, that to me is the great way that articulation gets manifested in psychoanalysis. Just a very, it seems very simple, I think. And yet it's, I, it's very, I, for me, very revelatory about the, the nature of the psyche. And then, I mean, Hegel then draws conclusions about the nature of, reality and being and even nature, but I don't think, which I think Freud would not draw. Like I think Freud just for him, it's just about the psyche and subjectivity. I think that's true of Lacan as well. And, and Hegel draws conclusions based on his analysis of subjectivity about the nature of being, which is a whole other thing. But I think for psychoanalysis that to me, that nice thing about the way you consciously want something and yet unconsciously desire to not get what you want. I find that just such a, I mean, it's disturbing, of course, but it's, it's such a revelatory insight that Freud had. Right. And I think it's exactly because it's disturbing that it's not more widely accepted, even though it exactly. seems very obviously true. <laughs> I, know, I know. I know. It's just, it's almost like it can't be accepted widely because it just goes, I mean, when I, I was just thinking, I'm writing a book on the identity politics right now. And I was just thinking about how, um, this idea that, you know, there, there's this constant question, why is the, why are working class whites in America voting against their self-interest? And, and one of my things I say in the book is, well, the question is that why are people voting, but how can they ever possibly vote in their self-interest? Like may, maybe that, so I think that psychoanalysis allows us to reverse the very question and say, how is it that we're even able to ever act in our self-interest? And I think that's, and I think that one of the problems for me of left-wing politics is that it constantly appeals to two things that I think psychoanalytic theory wants to say have no weight at all, which is knowledge and self-interest. Like those are the two things, right? Like I can't tell you how many left-wing documentaries I've seen. And here's like they're one of I mean, I'm, I love documentary filmmakers. It's great. But they think if we just give enough knowledge to people, then that will save the world. Or if we just get people to act in their own self-interest and they'll stop voting for people like Donald Trump or Victor Orban or whoever. And, and, 
I think that's just not true. I just think the fact that it's against their self-interest is not only a reason why they're not doing it, but it's why they are doing it. Like that's like the fact that it, like, I think people will not. And again, I think this is a nice thing about the way the contradiction between conscious will and unconscious desire. I think their, their willingness or their people's uh, proclivity for voting or acting against their self-interest is almost un, it's almost unchallengeable. Like, I think it's, so I think, you know, like I, I, one thing I think that, that, uh, left-wing movements need to do is to, to channel that in a way. I think that's one of the great victories of the right in the left. I don't know, in the last however many years. Yeah. Decades. decades. <laughs> I was thinking, I was going to say, I was going to say decades, but then I thought, my God, I mean, like that was the Nazi project as well. Like that was a, you know, that was an, inc- like all of fascism was that. So it's, it's a century maybe. So what led up to writing these two books? Uh, God, I don't know. That's a good question. I don't know. Just, uh, I love Hegel. I've always, I've, I've, so the Hegel thing, I've had a, I started with a relationship with Hegel in graduate school. And then I just, I've just, it's, lurked in the background. I've written mostly on psychoanalysis and I've just kind of written a few essays and I've always thought I just want to do a whole, but I didn't know German. So I thought I can't write a book on Hegel if I don't know, you know, just, it would be, it would be like a pretender. So that's part of the reason I had to wait. So I had to, I had to learn German and then, and then read all of Hegel in German. And that took a long time. And so it just took a while. And then I don't know. So it's been building up. I would say my I, I want to say it's my whole life I've been, but my whole like adult life, my, my younger life is a, was more mindless. But, um, uh, and then the, the one on identity politics is purely a response to our situation. Like it, it's purely a, like, I, I, and it's not long. It's a, it's a short thing, but it's, but I just see, I think identity and, and part of the problem is I think identity politics gets seen as a leftist project. I think it's completely a right wing project. And that, that's one of the things that I try to do. And I, it's also a defense. It's more, more than I critique of identity politics is defense of universality and the idea of and, and what constitutes the universal. And so that I just that, that's just a pure response to the situation that that exists today. So can you say more about that? Yeah, sure. So the, the situation of of couple things. So two things. So on the one hand, the, the right wing movements, which I think don't get, they get, they do not get identified as identitarian movements when I think they, I mean, some people identify them that way, but I think largely they're not identified as identitarian movements and identity politics is, you know, college kids are guilty of it. Or, so that's one thing I want I was wanted to try to clarify and attack. And then on the other hand, I, I think on the left, since the death of Marxism, there's been a there's been a suspicion of of any universalizing, and I want to and and that's I want to try to end that suspicion. And although I have to say the Hegel book is also very critical of Marx, so it's it's very much a criticism of the way Hegel has gotten uh, taken up by by or Hegel got taken up by Marx and then subsequently by Marxists. So it's a, it's basically a critique obviously of the, 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 I shouldn't say this is obvious because a lot of people think this of the thesis, antithesis, synthesis reading of Hegel, like everything's going to work out fine. And the, my point is no, his Hegel's whole idea is that we end in 
contradiction that that's the end point. That's the absolute for him. Um, so I don't know. So, so both of them have this, I don't want to say anti-Marxist because I think of this, do you know this line by Jean-Paul Sartre where he says the anti-Marxist is a dog? So I always, <laughs> I always have that in the back of my mind that I don't want to necessarily be, but I, but I, I in some way I'm kind of anti, anti-Marxist because I feel like there's this idea of salvation in Marx that I find very, uh, uh, Gulagist, <laughs> that's not a word, but like leading to the, like, I, I don't, I'm, I'm very much against the idea of salvation and utopia and all these, which I think come from Marx, uh, large, I mean, not, not solely, obviously, but largely. And I think it comes from this misreading of Hegel as a philosopher of synthesis and then Marx, like classless society become, or, or, uh, communist society becomes this society without antagonism. And I think that's a very that's a very uh, frightening image of of what we should be. Stri- I don't think we should be striving for that. Not alone. I don't think that. Not only do I think it's not realizable, but I don't think it's even a. I think once that's your goal, then it's there's a real problem. Right. So, Why would you want that to be the end result? Right. It sounds like all death drive to me. That's right. <laughs> that's right. That's right. So that's so that's 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 maybe one of the unifying things between the two books. And I mean, I, I it's funny because I used to be very Marxist when I was younger, and, and, and it was it's my 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 dad was a was a, a total conservative and 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 I don't know how to put it like lover of capitalism. And so when I came home and I went to college, I read Communist Manifesto or something and became and and sort of proclaim myself a Marxist. He said, he said, he said, he was God damn it. Can I curse <laughs> on your podcast? Can yeah. I curse? Okay. Okay. So he goes, he goes, God damn it. He goes, I, I sent you over to that pinko communist college and look what happened to you. So I, I always think like, Oh, that's where I started, but that's not, I mean, I think he would be more upset with me now, but, um, he died, but, uh, but, but I definitely moved away from that position. Cause I feel like that, that that notion of, and I think one of the I, one of the one of the wagers of the book on Hegel is that we can there can be a Hegelian politics that's re, could replace the Marxist politics. So I mean that's a very bold thing to say, but that's what I that would be my dream of it. I guess. My, my and what does that dream look like? Well, it's just that 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 I mean the. So Hegel's idea is that we get to the absolute when we uncover the idea that contradiction is unescapable, inescapable. And so uh, that so I feel like that's a kind of psychoanalytic, very much a psychoanalytic, something along the lines of what I would call a psychoanalytic cure, but for the society as, as a whole. But I think what you said earlier was really good that there's a reason why psychoanalysis isn't popular. <laughs> and I think there's also a reason why a real reading of a, a more authentic reading of Hegel's philosophy wouldn't be popular either. And the reason why Marxism is more popular because it has a way, even though obviously it's not the dominant way of thinking today, I think there's a real link between capitalism and Marxism in that they both have this promise of the future uh, free from contradiction. And so I think that that's, that to me is what I'm against, but I think that what I'm for would be a, 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 a relationship to like a ness, a understanding the necessity of contradiction and, and having a relationship to it. And so I feel like that's, you know, part of that. 
And, and so what I in the book on identity politics, I link that to the idea of universality, that universality is in some way the grasp that contradiction is is necessary. And it, universality actually comes out of that. It comes out of like my own failure to have an identity is my what puts me in touch with universality. And why do you say your father would be more angry with you now? That's a good question because I don't. That just totally came out. That was like this is, if this is like a psychoanalytic session, that just totally came out because I don't know that he. I mean, I don't know why he would because there are ways in which he'd be proud of me, like getting a PhD, writing a lot of books. He'd be happy about that. But um, I, God, I don't know because I think I think for the reason I said because I think it's easier for a strict capitalist to understand a Marxist than for them to understand a psychoanalytic or Hegelian thinker. So I think that that's why I said that, that I feel like he would, I think if I was, a, you know, the Marxism is a thing he could hate, but he would also, he can also make sense of it. Mm-hmm. And I think it's a way that, that understanding the necessity of contradiction just makes no sense either for what's interesting is either for an analytic philosopher or for a, Anne Rand, right? Like that's the, like Anne Rand, in Atlas Shrugged, she has this this one whole – it's not a chapter. My God, it's like a third of the book, and the book is 1,400 pages. But it's, the, the title of the section is called A Equals A. And so the point – and her point is all of the problems in the world stem from our – and she thinks that she gets this idea from Aristotle, which it does appear in Aristotle. But she thinks that all our problems in the world stem from our inability to reconcile ourselves to A equals A. That is, contradiction just cannot exist. That every what is identical is identical to itself. And if there's any, and Hegel's point is, he actually takes up this very equation, A equals A, and he's like, well, if once you make the distinction between them, then they're not exactly identical. Like you've already, there's always some non-identity in there, if or else you couldn't have the you wouldn't even have the equation that would make the identity. And mm-hmm. so that's, so I find that anyway, so I think that that would be to come back to my dad. I think that would be more in some way that would be more offensive to him. Uh, but I'm sad that he's not here to be offended. Actually, <laughs> yeah. But it makes sense though. The one can understand the opposing position more than that. There's like a third way or any I think other way. True. Don't you? I, Vanessa, I really think that's true. I really think that the, um, like the, to- that's why I think, uh, you know, that's why I think c- capitalism does capitalist democracy does so well with Islamic fundamentalism, right? Like it's a, it's, it's the opposite, but, it, but in some way it shares certain basic beliefs. And so I think a b- basic presuppositions about the nature of what they're striving for. And so I think that's why it's easy to understand and it's easy to, you know, they can hate, but of course it's. Right, and it There's keeps them in the same dynamic. Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So how did so, you get into psychoanalysis in the first place? That is a good question. So I was, I was, I was in graduate school, I was, I was anti-psychoanalytic because I thought I was more, uh, I was Marxist. That's what I was <laughs> So I thought psychoanalysis, bourgeois, individualist. Uh, but I had a, a professor, Walter Davis, who who wrote a book called Inwardness and Existence. And he was very influential on me. He's like, ah, you should read Freud. You know, you're really, you're not, you know, and I'm like, ah, it's just, it's, it's, it just, it just turns into psychic problems. What are really existential or social problems. And then, 
And then, and I sort of held to that position, held to that position. And then I read, uh, I remember this very well. It was 1992. It was, it was, uh, it was over Christmas break. I was part of this theory reading group and we were, we were going to read Slavoj Žižek's Sublime Object Ideology for the next, for January. And I said, oh, I'll just, I'm on vacation. I was seeing my girlfriend at the time, Hilary Neroni, who's now my spouse. And, uh, and I said, oh, I'll read it. And I started to read the book. And I, I remember calling my friend on the phone and I said, I said, stop whatever you're doing. Just go get this book, start reading it. And so it was really Sublime Object Ideology that converted me because, and I think, all I had read before was Alan Sheridan's translation of the Acree, and that was like, I don't know. All that is ever done is turn people away from, I think, from Lacan. So, um, and then once I read Sublime Object, then I read Four Fundamental Concepts of, the, of Psychoanalysis, and then I, and then everything was changed for me. So it was really Slavoj that really, because, and, and then Lacan, and then then I went back to Freud. So. Freud came last, and so it was like Zizek, Lacan, Freud. It was just exactly backwards. But it was because it, it, it intervened in this political, social way, and then that allowed, then that that sort of got me back to seeing the way in which the psyche already had all these questions that I thought were just social questions were actually psychic questions, maybe even more so. So that was that was really important for me. And also the way in which I thought, I think, I wonder what you think about this. Also the way in which Lacan, I thought as I read seminar 11 and then seminar seven and seminar three, those were the first three I read, um, that I felt like he really was existential in his approach to psychoanalysis. And I never saw that. I mean, I think I was wrong, but I never saw that in Freud. And so I, I viewed Lacan as very much like, um, like he was, I thought he was Sartrean with the unconscious. Mm. That's what I thought. Like I thought, this is great. This is like being in nothingness, but without the stupid, uh, you know, pre-reflexive cogito. That, but instead, we have the unconscious. And so I thought, I just thought it was amazing. And and it was, but I have to say, it was Slavoj that paved the way for me to see that. But but yeah. So I, I don't know. Do you think that's true? Like I think he's really part of that mid twentieth century French existentialist tradition, although totally different because they're all focused on conscious, you know, freedom. Right. But that makes sense, especially when you compare it to Freud, because Freud was trying to move away from this kind of like spiritual church based ideas and trying to make it more into biology. So he was really trying to bring all of these ideas and match them with biology, which Lacan was not doing. Right. Absolutely not doing. Yeah. <laughs> It's interesting you mentioned Lacan brought it back. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. That's, I love that way of putting it. Yeah, I think that's really good. I think it's really good. I mean, I, uh, what do you think about his relationship to religion, Lacan? Like, I think it's almost the opposite of Freud's, right? In what way? Well, just that he's <laughs> you focus the question on me. I asked you the question. Uh, uh, well, that I thought. I mean, I don't think he's religious. But I think he thinks the religious experience is really revelatory and, and in some way, I would say, necessary. Whereas Freud, you know, religions are the mass delusions of humanity, right? Like, I think that there's – he just has no truck with it. And right, I think, but he kind of sticks to it more structurally than Lacan does, I think. Oh, say more about that. Um, 
I don't know. I feel like his writing kind of maintains this bit of structural Abrahamic patriarchal kind of stance that he was trying to get out of, but I don't think he was really able to fully. And I feel like Lacan's able to more. Do you mean in style or, or. Yeah. Just his way of thinking. Yeah. Yeah. So he's more of a Judeo Christian. Than he thinks. Than he thinks. I I think so. (laughs) Yeah. 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 But I was just thinking that Lacan for Lacan, isn't it that religion is in some way necessary because of the, the, the blank space within the other, like that blank space is un like religion is just a way of, of thematizing that or something, right. Or filling it in or something, but, but it's, it's, it's also a way of acknowledging it. And so I think, yeah, and I, I don't know. I mean, I, I, I love the, what you said about Freud. Have you, have you thought about that a lot? Like the, the, his actual debt to the religious or the way he's repeating the religious. Structure. Yeah, I think, well, it actually, it sounds similar to this kind of capitalist Marxist thing. Like he was so opposed to it, but he remained in the same dynamic instead of finding kind of a new way. But maybe, yeah. you know, that was enough to get out of it as he could at that time. And maybe Lacan was able to get out of it further because Freud had made that step, you know. Yeah, yeah, I like that. But I think that your point about biology is crucial, though, that I think you're right. Like Freud... That seems to be a constant worry for him is how he can root what he's saying in biology. And then I think Lacan really doesn't want to do that. Yeah, I think that that's what Freud was trying to do, just keep it valid. I feel like he I feel like he thought that was the only way that he could validate what he was saying. Where at the same time, of course, he wrote and reflected and changed his mind all the time. And that was wonderful. But he always seemed to try to come back to rooting it in biology in that way. Yeah. Um, but but I think it would have been maybe just too much of a leap not to do that at the time, or they so, might have thrown him into, you know, hocus pocus that he didn't yeah. want to do. Well, I mean, he already he got that anyway, right? Mm. So, yeah, yeah. I think that's interesting because Lacan, uh, like, don't you think it's probably Saussure that makes what the gesture that Lacan, I mean, Saussure and others that Levi Strauss as well that make that sort of give him a grounding for making the step that he makes. I was just looking in uh, seminar 16 from, from the other to another. Uh, and, and he says there that it's that he read, he rereads the project for a scientific psychology, the, the, the 1895 Freud unpublished. Mm-hmm. And he reads the biology there, you know, this obviously through, signification right like so he so for him whenever freud's talking about biology and neurons etc he's really talking about signifiers and i think that's i think what's interesting is it gives a different kind it's still it's not a way of escaping a grounding in some kind of discipline but it just changes the discipline right it changes it from biology to linguistics yes signification i like that a lot i haven't read that and that makes a lot of sense because when i read the project i mean you could see psychoanalysis all over it even at that early stage you know he's trying to be a neurologist but (laughs) no i know i know it's amazing i mean there i think there's a way in which that's a you could see that as a really key a key work of his even but you have to you have to translate it into the into what would into, into the way that I think Lacan does. Mm-hmm. Which is, 
Yeah. So, what else would you like to talk about? Oh, that's a good question. Uh, <laughs> uh, Maybe we should talk about the violence book. That okay. Just came out. Yeah, let's talk about that. Since you contributed a lovely chapter to it. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, I, I love that book. Yeah. So why don't you talk about what inspired you to put it together, and then I'll talk about my thing. Sure. So I worked at a hospital in Brooklyn, an HIV clinic, for many years and was extremely frustrated with the treatment of my patients by the medical care system, the mental health care system, uh, and that hospital system. Because when I first moved to New York, I was very excited getting a job at a hospital in New York, working for the government. These are good jobs, quote-unquote, right? Planned to be there forever, right? <laughs> um, and then reality was very different. Uh, the hospital was really, really filthy. Sometimes sewer lines would open up. I mean, that level of filthy uh, inside the hospital. And I have patients with HIV and AIDS, uh, and, you know, the workers there would uh, call me, my, my upper management would call me kind of a diva for not wanting to walk my AIDS patients by open sewage during the day (laughs) and it was that level of terrible when I say it's terrible so um seeing that and then you know it was 2008 when I moved to New York so the economy was collapsing and they didn't have any layoffs at the hospital at the time but what they decided to do was to um stop filling positions when people would leave so say when when I started there, there were eight of us. When I left five years later, there were like three of us, and we were seeing just as many patients. So I was seeing people for like twenty minutes, like like three patients an hour every other week you know, for their for their mental health treatment. So it was really frustrating, really terrible. Um, when they they tried to cut like Medicaid benefits and. Uh, Medicaid would only start paying for certain medications and not other medications. But when you're treating people with HIV, you can't just give them any HIV medication. There's this long process of giving them combinations of medications to try to figure out which combination suppresses their strain of the virus. And like after all of this work that the hospital was doing to treat people, then all of a sudden half the medications aren't being covered. And, uh, only the other half was and then all my patients are getting switched to these medications that aren't working and we're getting sick and this sort of thing so it was very disheartening to see and I felt very helpless what can I do and eventually I had to leave the hospital just because I was I mean it was making me sick working there so I just had to leave and then I met Manya around that time and was complaining to her about all of this and she was talking to me about uh, training in France and like working with psychotic patients with Guy Dana there and like these amazing ways he was setting up these like communities and helping people uh, live in these kinds of environments that weren't so constrictive and letting their symptoms kind of play out and trying to understand them instead of just medicating everyone and trying to you know control them. And it was, like, such a night and day difference <laughs> between, like, the, the system that I was working in, the system that she was telling me about. I was yeah. like, we need to talk more about this. And then we decided to have this conference kind of addressing these, like, systemic, systemically violent issues. Like, why are patients here 
in America being treated this way? You know, what can we do differently? Let's look at some other systems and that sort of thing. So that's why we had this conference in 2015 um, on, like, systemic violence. And then, like, I guess it was the year before last, we decided, like, we should really make a book out of kind of collective papers from that conference. But since everything was happening with the election and everything, um, we decided to kind of focus it more on, like, current systemic issues in America more more so. Um, So that's how the book came about. Oh, cool, cool. And then you contributed your paper on eroticizing biopower. Can you tell us a little yeah. bit about that? Okay, so I my the idea for that paper came from um, so so this idea of biopower is that power takes hold of the body and that it that the control of bodies is the primary way in which power operates today. So it does, and, and rather than being uh, a functioning as a prohibition, like you can't, thou shalt not do whatever, that power instead is productive. This is an idea that comes from Michel Foucault, that that power actually gets you to think about your body and gets you to, to think of and, and, and constantly gets you to live. So so it wants to produce life. It wants and and it wants to produce concern for life. Like an Apple Watch would be a perfect uh, emblem of biopower, uh, and and so one of the one of the other manifestations of biopower, I think people would say, is that is the security lines at airports. So the the idea that we're going to protect the the ultimate goal of government is protection of life. That would be a, a biopolitical form. And and what was interesting to me, so I went to the. I, I like everyone, I guess I go to the airline at the airport and I think oh, it's kind of funny for one thing. It's funny that you can't tell a joke, right? Like then you're, if you tell a joke, you're, you're automatically, I think you're off the, I don't know what happens to you, but it's not good. Uh, but the other thing is they, they do this, this weird thing where they say, can I, you go through the scanner and then they say, can I touch you? First, I have latex gloves on, which I find strange. And then they say, can I touch you? Would you mind? And, and I even was touched. She goes, I think it was a guy. So they do have guy on guy because they don't believe in homosexual desire, I guess. But, um, that, that, the, the, the guy goes, can I touch you in the groin area? And so that's what actually inspired me to write this essay because I thought, well, that's odd that, that it's really about protecting. They say it's about protecting our life, but what's really going on, I think is there's a kind of, there's a way in which, What's at the heart of what seems like biopolitical protection of life is actually how do we construct desire? And so I feel like they're trying to they, – they, they, it was really a, a place where we could all of a sudden start to desire again. Like the, and that seemed to me like that was the, in some way the mot- – that, that, that there's a real – and I, I think I draw this conclusion in the essay that there's a, there's a link between – the uh, searching by the TSA agent and the the way that like at, at the certain private colleges where you have to ask like may I remove your uh, top and then can I touch your and then it's the same thing it's examining exa- the, the parallel between the two sexual acts I mean one's not a sexual act but uh, is pretty clear and so my point was that uh, this protection against violence is actually an attempt to, there's a sexual dimension to it, an attempt to arouse 
uh, desire. And so that, and, and I, I don't know if I think this is a larger idea, but I do feel like a lot of times, I do think this is a larger idea that, that a lot of times that we, uh, think when we think we're protecting life, what we're really doing is trying to re arouse ourselves or re eroticize ourselves. And so I like, I mean, the menace of terrorism and at large, I think is part of that re eroticization of, of life. Cause I think what's interesting is capitalism is in many ways a de eroticization of the social world. And so you need these other erotic forms to then make capitalism make us be able to be invested in it because it's very hard. I think it's very hard to just be invested as a pure capitalist unless you're one of these psychotic, you know, like uh, Bill Gates or whoever. Um, but uh, I, I feel like that, that the, for other people, the way that you get invested in it is through this like threat of violence, which then creates a sexual, my point in the essay is that it creates then a sexual involvement in what you're, in what you're doing. So I don't know. I mean, maybe it's too wildly psychoanalytic, but I don't know. I feel I'm pretty convinced by it. And I, I part of it is I see um, a danger in this, what I think is like Foucauldian power analysis. And I, I feel like that's the, I feel like we're, that's one of the things that the academic world is caught in. And you were talking about the way psychoanalysis is kind of marginalized. I think it's marginalized by this power analysis of every dynamic. Like that's the way everything gets analyzed is in terms of power. And I feel like that's the, that, that part of what psychoanalytic theory does is introduce sex into power and sex into violence. So that's, that's what that essay was trying to do. Right. So these threats and sort of things bring this like arousal and tension and stuff that's sort of like capitalism with this endless like feeding and buying. Nothing's ever satisfied. It makes everything really dull. And I, I think that's right. Yeah. I think it's dull. I think it's basically like, think about how boring it is to go shopping or, I mean, like it's, there's a little thrill. It's like numbing. Yeah, it's numbing. Exactly. And I think the threat of violence then kind of, or, or, you know, like other things, like I think racism has this function. I think homophobia has this, I think all these kind of things have this function of bringing a little, a little spark of, of enjoyment into the capitalist, into this in desire, into the dry capitalist, pure consumption. So I feel like, I feel like it could not survive without these different supplements, like, racism, threat of fundamentals, violence, etc. Right. So maybe that's why the people that tend to benefit from capitalism tend to also continue to spark those fires. Exactly. exactly. <laughs> it's funny that I think Lacan said that the capitalist world can't survive without a war every 10 years. And I think, I mean, that was a wild underestimation, but uh, I think it's true. I think it needs a constant, a permanent it's constant war. Yeah. yeah. It's declared or not. And, you know, but, you know, even when we have a, a sort of president to the left, like Obama, he didn't – there was not really – even though he campaigned on promising to stop the permanent war, he didn't really – he didn't really do it. So, you know, that's – I think that's – I think there is a way in which it needs that rather than and, – and so – I mean, that's my, that's basic, but, but I think what's great about psychoanalysis is the way that it shows, uh, the sexuality of the violence, you know, like that, the, that violence is never just an attempt to destroy life, that it's an attempt that there's a, 
a charge of enjoyment to it. And uh, without that, then we wouldn't engage in it. Right. And that goes along with, you know, people think that this like sex and aggression are opposite poles, but actually they're like the same, they're the same side. There's the same drive and the death drive is like this inertia or this deadening, you know, sex and aggression are both at least trying to do something. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, I think that's true. I mean, I think that, um, yeah, I almost, well, I don't know. I mean, I think there's, there's different readings of death. Like Slavoj has a pretty particular reading of death drive and, well, his is that death drive is precisely the thing. It's what you described as not the death drive. So it's it's precisely the thing that that repeats and keeps us going. That it's the it's the repetition of of uh, whatever it is that we do. Like it's that it's that drive of repetition and not a drive to eliminate all excitation. You know, so but but I think that I, I don't know. To me, it's not important about the terminology, but I do think what's interesting is I think you're right that aggression and sex are linked together, and that they uh, that they're that they're and they're both cause trying to cause trouble. And I think I, I love this idea in psychoanalysis that the causing trouble is what like I think that's the big change that Freud makes in. 1920 when he goes to beyond the pleasure principle. And I think the idea is that we get enjoyment and I think Lacan will make a lot out of this, but that, so early idea of the pleasure principle is we just want to get rid of excitation. Right. Um, and that produces pleasure. But then I think later on he comes to think, no, there's something about the causing trouble for ourselves that is enjoyable in itself. Mm -hmm. And I feel like that, I feel like that shift that, it's not just pleasure getting rid of excitation, but actually arousing excitation, causing trouble, that there's there's enjoyment in that. And I think that's the, that seems to me to be his great breakthrough. And I think that that's what Lacan mainly takes up. So I, I find that that and, and, and back to that essay, that's that was a driving thing of that essay, that it's not just it's not just like, let's get rid of this trouble. You know, let's get rid of the potential for violence with people coming through the, the screening, but let's actually cause trouble for ourselves, you know? So I feel like that's the key psychoanalytic idea. And, and that's something that I think would be very helpful for a wider public to understand that maybe we enjoy the trouble. <laughs> yeah. No, I know that's the thing, right? You can't get rid of the trouble. <laughs> back to what we were saying about Marx earlier, right? Like, I think there's a, there's a dream in Marxism of getting rid of the trouble. And, and that would, that, and what makes life interesting is the trouble. And I think that what makes life enjoyable is the trouble. And then I think, so I feel like that's, you're right. But, I mean, I think you're right that that's, that's at once the great insight of psychoanalysis, but that's the thing that, and it would be great if that had a wider dissemination, but People don't want to hear that. Like that is something very, I think there's a real resistance to hearing that, you know, like, I, I don't know. I feel like it's a, because it's nice to think that, that, that if I could just, and I think that, that if you think about uh, Lacan's concept of object, uh, object A, sorry, as, as the, as the barrier um, that you enjoy, then I think that also makes sense about the trouble, right? Like you, you enjoy the, the, if you get rid of the thing that's 
stopping you from fully realizing your desire. You think you're going to really get it. And instead that you're going to lose everything because it's the very barrier. That is the thing that, that makes your, that, that, that arouses you, that gives you some, you know, some, that, that gives you your enjoyment. Also with the TSA agent, what would happen if you said no? Like, no, you can't touch my groin. That just leads to more trouble. I, I, <laughs> I know. No one knows. Everyone knows not to sit. So it's probably worse than joking saying no. <laughs> yeah. Although I, when I was a kid, I used to joke. I mean, not a kid, but like in high school or college, I would joke. It used to be fine to joke. Yeah, but that was like, all pre nine eleven. Yeah, that's right. That was the change. That was the change. But things really did change. Yeah. But I would say, like they said, do you have anything in your bag? They'd be like, yeah, just a bomb, whatever. And then it was funny. Like people didn't, they would laugh. But but now, like, God, you can't say that. So, so which what's is next what, for you, Todd? Next for me. Um, well, I'm teaching a class, I'm teaching something starting tomorrow, a class on Star Trek and psychoanalysis, actually. So we're starting out reading Freud, and then we're going to watch Star Trek. So that'll be fun. Uh, but my book-wise, I'm, I'm writing a book on this thing that we just talked about, about, um, uh, power versus enjoyment in politics. So I'm trying to say the very thing that you just said that, uh, that, that we, that politics should focus on the trouble and the necessity of the trouble and, and the enjoyment that that causes rather than thinking that power is the answer. Thank you for listening to Rendering Unconscious. You've just heard an interview with Todd McGowan, a professor of theory and film at the University of Vermont. Dr. McGowan has authored several books, including Only a Joke Can Save Us, A Theory of Comedy, Capitalism and Desire, The Psychic Cost of Free Markets, Contemporary Film Directors, Spike Lee, the fictional Christopher Nolan, Enjoying What We Don't Have, The Political Project of Psychoanalysis, The Real Gaze, Film Theory After Lacan, and The Impossible David Lynch. His forthcoming book is by Columbia University Press, and is entitled Emancipation After Hegel, Achieving a Contradictory Revolution. Todd McGowan also contributed to On Psychoanalysis and Violence, Contemporary Lacanian Perspectives, a book edited by myself and Dr. Minus Steinkohler. His chapter, The Sex in Their Violence, eroticizing biopower. He also hosts his own podcast with Ryan Engley called Why Theory. For more information and links to all of these, please visit renderingunconscious.org or my website, drvanessasinclair.net. Thank you.
Mr. Carpenter. 